This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Americans, your government is corrupt. Your leaders are geriatric and or corrupt. Your media, with the exception of a select few outlets, is dishonest. And your country is teetering on a cliff. What are you going to do about it? The show starts now. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. So get this, on Saturday, the DOJ sent out a letter to Devin Archer, Hunter's former business associate, just before he's scheduled to testify about Biden family corruption, bribery, and the pay-to-play scheme. Now, Archer is still testifying behind closed doors, but the timing, still quite the coincidence. Yeah, the letter from the Department of Justice is uh, trying to nudge the judge to go ahead and uh, sentence Devin Archer. Uh, for uh, something unrelated to what we're going to be talking to him about tomorrow. Uh, it's odd that it was issued on a Saturday, and it's odd that it's right before he's scheduled to come in to uh, have an opportunity to speak in front of the House Oversight Committee and tell the American people the truth about what really went on with Burisma. So, you know, I don't know if this is a coincidence, Maria, or if this is another example of the weaponization of the Department of Justice, but I can tell you this. The lengths to which the Biden legal team has gone to try to intimidate our witnesses, to coordinate with the Department of Justice, and to certainly coordinate with the Democrats on the House Oversight Committee to encourage people not to cooperate with our investigation, to encourage banks not to turn over bank records, to encourage Treasury not to let us have access to those suspicious activity reports. It's very troubling, and I believe that uh, you know this is another violation of the law. This is obstruction of justice. Well, it wouldn't be Biden's America and Biden's DOJ if it wasn't corrupt and weaponized. So here we are. What a crock. What a shameless crock. But if you ask Democrats, there is nothing going on. The sky is purple and the grass is red. Let me ask you this. Do you think it would behoove the president for him to come out and say, hey, I had no business dealings with my son. My son's issues are my son's issues. Do you think he needs to say that more directly? Because there's a lot of people that believe something something else what happened. Here. Well, let's be clear about that point, Chuck. There's been a five-year investigation, five years, by a Trump-appointed U.S. attorney. Um, this investigation started during the Trump administration, and they've come forward with not one shred of evidence um, tying President Biden to any of this. <laughs> not one shred? Not one shred? You're right, Senator Coons. There isn't one shred. There are about 10,000 shreds at this point. WhatsApps, emails, FBI, FD 1023, suspicious activity reports, bank statements, whistleblowers, and testimony from former business associates. Testimony Biden's DOJ is seemingly tried to scuttle, by the way. But you gotta love it. The evidence piles up as Democrats look the other way, and then they tell us 
Well, there's no evidence. It's still evidence just because you won't look at it doesn't mean it's not there. Helen Keller could see the evidence at this point. It's that substantial. This must all be a meme or a dream, but it can't be the United States of America, my lord. Joining me now with her take on this ongoing theater of the absurd and more is former State Department spokesperson Morgan Ortegas, also Nashville resident. Nashvillian. So we're happy to have yes. you here in, in our, our little uh, neon den. Um, but now yeah. on to some important stuff here. Yeah. I, I know that you follow this, obviously, and discuss it extensively, but the American people are sitting back watching everything going on with the Trump indictment and then watching the Hunter Biden sweetheart plea deal fall apart and then watching for the Devin Archer testimony and all of this. And a lot of Americans are still confused how this applies to them, especially when it comes to the Biden family corruption. But I know that you've obviously been studying this for many years, not just now. What impact does everything going on with the Biden family have on our national security as it relates to, I don't know, China, Ukraine, some of those countries in question? Well, it, it definitely has an impact, Tommy. And, you know, as a, as a national security professional, was Trump's spokesperson at the State Department for the last two years of his administration, I looked at all this and I thought, listen, there's a million lawyers that are, that are looking at what Hunter's doing. I'm not a lawyer. I, you know, I can't go in there. But about a year ago, uh, I, it started to you know, bother me, these connections that Hunter had with, uh, uh, with businesses from nefarious regimes, especially from China. Why does it matter about doing business in China? Because there's no such thing as a private sector in China, right? Every company there is beholden to the Chinese Communist Party. So um, one of the things when I started looking about a year ago, I wrote this piece for The Spectator magazine, is I wanted to look at how uh, uh, Hunter's business dealings, how that may have affected his father's uh, oversight of the China portfolio. Now, what most people forget, actually, is that then-Vice President Biden uh, was put in charge of the China portfolio uh, by President Obama. Uh, he had an incredibly close relationship with Xi Jinping, who is now, of course, the leader of China, the leader of the Chinese Communist Party. Um, they had a close relationship even before he became premier. So one of the things that uh, you know is very troubling, uh, let's just say we'll see if, if President Biden actually financially benefited from his son. There's a lot of smoke there. Um, one of the things that's troubling is when you start to look at the number of business business trips uh, that his mm -hmm. son, that Hunter Biden took uh, with the vice president, uh, the number of meetings that he was in, and then you start to look at what happened, what did China do to the United States while the vice then Vice President Biden was in charge of the Chinese portfolio? Well, first of all, you saw the militarization of the South China Sea. You saw the Chi you saw the Chinese Communist Party steal. Uh, hundreds of thousands of information of, of people who hold top, seat top secret clearances in the government. I was one of them. Wow. My husband was one of them. We both got the letters in the mail that said you were potentially a part of the compromise. And I thought, okay, great. What are we going to do about it? Um, and, and so, and, and that was incredibly nefarious because these are not just government employees. These are people that hold top secret clearances and, the, and the, all of the information, every detail about our lives. So they stole that information. Uh, they continued the theft, uh, the intellectual property theft in the billions of dollars uh, of American businesses. And essentially, I think it was 2015, uh, President Obama and Xi Jinping uh, had a press conference in the Rose Garden. This is after the Chinese had stolen uh, hundreds of thousands of people's security clearance information. And in that Rose Garden ceremony, Xi Jinping um, said, I'm not going to do all of these things. We're going to reset right. the relationship. Fast forward, they did all of those things. So essentially, the Chinese were robbing us blind 
Tommy, in many ways uh, during Obama's presidency, we completely had our eye off the ball because we had this like weird theory that we were going to just accept China's rise and then instead of fighting them, we were going to slowly, you know, just capitulate, slowly watch them take over. And it took someone like President Trump saying, stop, like hold the line. We are not going to accept that China is rising and that we are declining. Right. So I think that's where a lot of Americans are frustrated, especially Trump supporting Americans, because they saw President Trump come in and really lay down the law, not only with China, but all yeah. of our enemies. We saw him with you know, a firm stance and the world, whether they were afraid of him because they thought yeah. he was crazy or afraid of him because they thought he would follow through, whatever it was, they were afraid of Donald J. Trump. And then you have coronavirus from China. And you've got an election that a lot of people are still very upset about in 2020. And then you've got a president, Joe Biden. And then, you know, flash forward to this presidency, you've got a Chinese spy balloon traversing our country for a week. And you see this president's stance on China, which doesn't seem yeah. to be very firm. And then you've got us hemorrhaging billions and billions to Ukraine. And that's also part of this equation with the Hunter slash possibly mm -hmm. Joe business dealings. So it feels like all of this, it's not just little unrelated tidbits here. It feels like this is all coming together full circle as it relates to our foreign policy. Yeah. So now we're looking at Ukraine, for example, and Russia. When you look at that from a bird's eye view, from the time that you've spent, how does that fit into this whole mess? Well, I mean, the number one problem, the reason why you and I are having this discussion about Russia and Ukraine right now is because President Biden and his team failed at their number one goal, their stated goal, which was to deter Russia from invading Ukraine. Now, we did not fail at deterrence in the Trump administration. Why is that? Because Trump did many things. First of all, what you just spoke about, just being a tough, strong leader that people were afraid of, right? That's important. Uh, people looked at Trump and said, you know what? He released the Moab Bob in Afghanistan. People forget this. He destroyed the physical caliphate of right. ISIS in Iraq and Syria, right? He got al-Baghdadi. He wasn't afraid to take on Soleimani, uh, the Iranian terrorist, uh, which was responsible for many American deaths. And so he was, there's a big difference, you know, this isolationist talk about we want to withdraw from the world. That's not what Trump did. What he didn't do is get us involved in stupid engagements. He didn't unnecessarily put troops on the ground. But when he needed to be tough, when he needed to take decisive military action to destroy the physical caliphate of ISIS, he did so. So, you know, back to the Ukraine debate, people forget that Trump provided lethal aid to the Ukrainians, right? It was the Obama administration that only sent blankets and well wishes, <laughs> and then the Russians invaded Crimea. It was Trump who sent lethal weapons and drew a line, and Russia did not invade Ukraine under his presidency. Fast forward, Biden comes in. Jake Sullivan, who's the national security advisor, says, uh, that the Biden administration is not going to provide any more lethal or military assistance to the Ukrainians unless Putin invades. Well, Putin is many things, but he's not a stupid man, right? And so whenever you tell him, like, okay, well, we're not actually going to provide this stuff unless you invade, to him that was that, and we could go through the list, getting rid of the sanctions on the Keystone Pipeline, effectively mm -hmm. greenlighting that pipeline that Trump and our administration had sanctioned to death. You know, you, you take all of these dovish measures and that signals to an autocrat, uh, hey, I, I can get away with this. So why does it matter? You know, you think, well, you're, we're a year and a half in. Why does it matter about whose fault it is that this started and that deterrence fails? Well, it matters because if we were unable, if the Biden administration was unable to deter Putin from taking that measure, 
how are they going to deter Xi Jinping from invading <laughs> Taiwan or some other military confrontation in Asia, um, which we are woefully unprepared for? You know, I say this often when I'm on the campaign trail and talking. I say, who has the largest navy in the world? You know who that is? I would assume it's China. It is now. We, right. we had a thousand ship navy under Ronald Reagan, right? We, can't, we couldn't get the 300 to save our life. Uh, right now, um, so the Chinese are, you know, are beating us there. Uh, they are rapidly expanding their nuclear arsenal, ballistic missiles. I mean, you could go through the whole list. They are preparing uh, for war, and so we must ask ourselves, what will deter Xi Jinping from saying, you know what, I'm actually afraid of America. I don't think I'm going right. to do this. Well, I can tell you, it's not figuring out what gender pronoun you need to use in your <laughs> uniform. That's not going to deter Xi Jinping. And it feels like a lot of the stuff with Ukraine. Um, somewhat feels like a distraction. We're worried mm -hmm. about Russia. I'm more worried about China, and I'm worried about China and Russia teaming up. Yeah. Oh, I don't know, add Iran into that? I mean, there's a, right. a, lot of, a lot of concerns that we would have if our enemies align, which it seems to be in the process currently, and then if you have a president whose son is making money from foreign entities, that just throws another piece into this equation that's unsettling for a lot of Americans. Another thing I want to talk about is cyber. Because now mm -hmm. we know that China might be infiltrating U.S. defense systems. They call it a ticking time bomb. I mean, that could have some serious implications. When it comes yeah. to space and when it comes to cybersecurity, how prepared is the United States to confront that kind of a threat? So we are, this is such an excellent point that you bring up, Tommy. Um, you know, the next war could invariably be fought in space and in cyber, right? We might not actually see, you know, we keep thinking, and, and as we should, our Navy preparing uh, for what, you know, naval confrontation might might look like uh, near the waters of Taiwan. It, this whole thing might be fought in space, right? So uh, uh, it might be fought in cyber. So the article that you're referring to, now again, this is reporting from the Wall Street Journal. Um, uh, and so when, when you look at what the Wall Street Journal is saying, essentially, uh, they're saying that the Chinese were able to infiltrate through spyware and malware uh, into our uh, defense installations around the country, into our military bases. So, you know, for example, you've got 50, around 50,000 reservists in the Navy, and in the event of war, you need to be able to snap to, you know, call those people up like we had to mm -hmm. do after 9-11. Uh, well, it's going to be really hard to call everybody up if they don't have access to email, or if they can't get into their Navy email right. accounts or whatever branch of the military that we're in. Now, we are also, listen, we are also clearly working on our own set of, uh, of offensive operations as well. Um, and, and, and that's something like the 10th Fleet and Cybercom are, are working on. But the challenge is, Tommy, is that we are playing catch up because what mm -hmm. happened is we spent 20 years in Iraq and Afghanistan and that took our eye off the ball. In the Bill Clinton administration, they opened up to China um, after Nixon famously had. And so essentially what you had is 40 years of Republicans and Democrats saying, well, if we opened up to China, and by the way, may have made sense at the time, I may have made also the decision, but they said if we open to China and we start doing business with them, then that's going to cause uh, the regime, the Communist Party, to moderate because the people are going to be, billions of people did get lifted out of poverty in China, but um, that theory ended up not being true. And what happened is after the Chinese ascended to uh, the WTO, the World Trade Organization, and the Bush administration, we're very rightfully so fighting terrorism, right? We had been attacked in our home soil. We were all focused on that. I was in Iraq in 2007, worked as an intel analyst after that, you know, on Iraq. So we're all sitting here focused on Iraq and Afghanistan. And guess what the Chinese were doing? 
they were focused on us. So uh, yes, we are preparing, but it's, it's years and years of catch up. And you combine that with a totally, totally demoralized military after the fall of Kabul to the Taliban, where we mm -hmm. saw 13 teenagers, right? Most of them were not born right. uh, when 9-11 happened. You see them killed and you see a demoralized military and people who are just not willing and not wanting to, to sign up. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a confluence of events that is very dangerous to our national security. Yeah, that seems to be the biggest part of the problem there is the same thing with law enforcement. People yeah. are not sure that they want to risk their lives to, not because they don't yeah. love their country, but because they are fearful that the current leadership yeah. might not have their back the way they would like to have our country's back. And the next thing I want to turn to when we're talking about threats yeah. to our national security is, I don't know, maybe our own southern border. If you were going yeah. to do something to the United yeah. States, there's a pretty wide open, gaping, pussing hole down south that seems to be the perfect opportunity yeah. for not just people who are coming in illegally. That's one part of the problem. But when you start seeing more Chinese coming through and really the whole world coming through, what are your biggest concerns with the mm. border and what could it mean five years from now? Well, have you, you've been to the border, I many assume. Times, yeah, yep. many times. I, I went for the first time uh, last fall and was able to see it for myself. And I'll tell you, one of the things that we focused on in our border trip is the plight of the women, the, the teenage girls, the young women uh, that are trafficked, uh, that are, God forbid, they're raped. You know, they're sexually assaulted. And, and so, number one, I think we have to, when you look at, well, this makes no sense, right? If you just look at it as an objective person, why would the Biden administration allow exactly what you just said, an open, uh, undefended border, a totally undefended border that, that is a national security risk and allows untold numbers of people and nationalities to come over? That makes no sense. Why would administration allow it? Well, it's under the guise of, uh, this is supposedly the more humanitarian measure, right. so you can let these economic migrants come. It's not even humanitarian when you look at it. I don't no. call women, I, I, in my book, women being raped and sexually assaulted and trafficked because they've been sold the lie that they can easily get into the United States. That doesn't sound very loving and affirming and humanitarian mm -hmm. to me. So the, the whole premise of their policy, uh, uh, that they're the kind-hearted ones, doesn't even make any sense. Um, you know, it is, uh, you said it's a ticking time bomb. It's only a matter of a time, I think, unfortunately, and I, I hope, pray I am wrong on this, but I think it's only a matter of time before there's a terrorist attack, attack in the United States that emanated from someone that came across the border. But you know what? You don't even need a terrorist attack because you already sort of have that daily with the fentanyl that right. comes into the United States, the number one killer of young people 18 to 49 in this country. And the callousness from the people that are in charge uh, right now, you know, maybe they come from families or from communities where it doesn't affect them. But from what I can tell, it doesn't really matter your socioeconomic status, your race, your religion. Every family is being affected by this. And so while do I worry about a terrorist attack potentially emanating? Sure, it's very easy for that to happen. In many ways, we have a terrorist attack every day right? with the fentanyl that's killing our young people. And beyond that, when you inject millions of people into a country that's already struggling under Bidenomics, you're already seeing, and I was just in New York City, they've got illegals, migrants, whatever you want to call them, sleeping on the streets now, overflowing out of hotels. They don't know yeah. where to put these people. They're still busing them to 
other places, of course, to California, which the Californians are very upset about. But you've got Texas yeah. being overrun and overwhelmed, Arizona being overrun and overwhelmed, all these border states having to take this incoming, trying to disperse it because they can't take it all, trying to send a message. But you've still got millions of people mm. coming into this country and into this economy. And it feels like there is just no urgency to do anything about it, it feels like it's part of a, a bigger plan. And I'm wondering in a few years from now, even yeah. if we do have a new president, it's really, really hard to undo millions of people yeah. in your country. Hard, not impossible, I would say, when Obrador, who is the current uh, president of Mexico, when he was elected, he's a socialist. And that was when Trump was in office. And so people said, oh my God, how is Trump gonna handle Obrador? He handles him a lot better than Biden does. I mean, I think that objectively, Trump and Obrador had a Lopez Obrador had a better relationship than the Biden and he do. And so we looked at Mexico, we looked at the Northern Triangle countries, and we played hardball with them and said we are absolutely not tolerating this. And uh, and we were able to do things like the asylum cooperation agreements, uh, remain in Mexico, mm -hmm. you know, policies that would actually stop this from happening. Uh, there is there is no will in the Democratic Party to stand up to its base uh, that you know is just wants to willfully ignore the number one killer of young people in this country, which is the drugs coming over. You know, not to mention. You know, when I look at these people, you know, they are in a situation when they're coming over. A lot of the normal, like, day-to-day -day people, they're just told they're in their home country. It's probably violent. It's They probably don't have good jobs. And they think, I get to go to America? That's great. And they're not told the, like, harsh reality of what's going to happen. Like you said, you could end up street sleeping in the streets of New York City, you know, whenever you get here. And the vice president, she often talks about the root causes of issues. She's supposed to be the border czar. I would like a report. Did you find the root cause? And what have you done about said root cause in the two and a half, three years that you have been the vice president of the United States? You know, what's your answer? What frustrates me when they talk about root causes, it's really yeah. not that hard to figure out. When yeah. you're coming across the border illegally, you are paying a smuggler, you're paying a coyote, you're paying them thousands of dollars, if not tens of thousands of dollars to get over. So you are therefore funding the very criminal organizations that are destroying the countries that these people are fleeing from. So when you're enriching those criminal organizations That's and those right. violent organizations, right. how do you ever make those countries better when you are actively funding it by letting people come over here with criminal organizations? So yeah. to me, it, when you allow illegal immigration, you are funding the root causes. That's a good point. That's a really good point. You should be in foreign policy, Tommy. <laughs> you should come over with me to the nerd Isn't side of the house. Isn't it just common sense, though? I mean, because I know because I've been to the border. And, yeah. and people, I think Americans have this notion that some of these people are just deciding one day that they're going to come over and they start walking. But that's not the case. They are all paying up. People do not get across that border. I mean, yeah. my goodness, if we had the kind of border security that the criminal organizations have, we'd be in a good spot well, because they mark you yeah. with wristbands. They, they know who's coming over. You're not just going to slip past the cartel. They don't play like we do, yeah. right? Yeah. Well, and, and actually to your point, uh, we're enriching the human traffickers. We are enriching the cartels. So again, from my national security perspective, I'm saying, wait a minute, you're undermining Mexico. You're undermining the, the, the authorities in Mexico. You are undermining the government. Every time uh, we take policy, you know, every policy has a ramification. Every action that you take or, or, or inaction, right? Policy inaction also has ramifications. So whenever you are, the cartels are making billions, billions just off the human trafficking and human smuggling. And so when you empower criminal organizations, whenever you empower cartels within Mexico, you are directly 
uh, helping uh, cause uh, the destabilization of our neighbor. Well, how threatening is that to the United States if we have, and Mexico is not there yet, but if it gets to the point that Mexico becomes a failed state or a narco state, that is our direct neighbor. That then in turn, you know, failed states on our border would in turn harm our own national security. So again, these, these policies that are supposedly according to the left, according to progressives, you know, well-intended and humanitarian, uh, are literally uh, endangering the national security of Mexico by, by empowering to the tune of billions of dollars uh, these cartels. I mean, how in the world, if I was the government in Mexico, I, I would be up in arms around about that. Well, and we know when you play hardball with the Mexican government, as Trump did, they do respond because they actually yeah. utilize their military and they try to do something instead of just pushing the problem to the United States. So this all has to do with leadership. Mm -hmm. We don't have it in Joe Biden. We certainly no. don't have it in Kamala Harris. Mm -hmm. We're hoping within the next couple of years we can get some more leadership and correct the problems. But for now, it just feels like we're sitting ducks. And I hate to end the interview on such a, <laughs> <laughs> such a downer note, so I will end it with this. Yes. Okay, have, you, have you seen the Barbie movie yet? No, I need to. I was away at reserve duty. I want to say I did. I was in Fort Worth in the stockyards, which I love so yes. much fun. And I got the cutest pink cowboy hat. So I'm ready. I've got my pink cowboy hat. I had to end it with something light because we are <laughs> in a neon studio. I have seen it and I love it. it. I'll be very honest. Good. I don't get the outrage. I love the movie. So I want to see Oppenheimer too. They think both. You know, that's yeah. more. I'm a dork, probably so I more on the dark side, but I think that's both. And, I yeah. think right now, with everything bad going on, we need to have some bright spots in yeah. our culture and in our news, because if you just focus on everything wrong, it's a very dark place to live in. So yeah. we'll end it with that. I hope you watch the Barbie movie, and thanks so much for being here. We're so happy to have you in Nashville. Thank you. All right. Still ahead, the Trump campaign has reportedly used tens of millions in donations to fund legal battles, and yeah, I'm a little concerned. My final thoughts are next. The Trump campaign has spent more than its quarter two fundraising total on legal fees. And meanwhile, some on Twitter are griping about Ron DeSantis drinking a beer. It's time for Tommy's Honesty Corner and my final thoughts. Okay, so normally I take what I read in the Washington Post or New York Times with a grain of salt given both publications went from newspapers of record to more useful for toilet paper. But when I saw and read this particular article, yeah, it bothered me. According to this reporting, Trump's PAC Save America has doled out more than 40 million bucks on legal costs in the first half of 2023 alone. This money has not only gone to fund Trump's legal defense, but also his advisors and others swept up in his legal snafus. That $40 million plus is not only more than the campaign raised in the second quarter of the year, but the legal fees are also the single largest expense incurred. And apparently a lot of this fundraising money has come from small dollar donors. So a lot of average everyday Trump supporting patriots who wanted to chip in with the hopes of reelecting the former president. So listen, if Trump supporting patriots are well aware their hard-earned money is going to help pay down the legal fees for a billionaire business mogul, that's fine and dandy, and y'all can obviously send and spend your money the way you see fit. I know many Trump supporters want to help him win these largely political, unfair, and BS legal battles. I just wonder if now that some of you know what your money is going to pay for, given a lot of you are probably not billionaire business moguls flying on private jets, that might make you a little salty, because I sure would be. Now, before y'all go for my mega jugular, listen, I agree that the former president is being unfairly put through the ringer and that the system has been rigged against him in a lot of ways. I get it, and I agree. Just know what you're paying for. That's all I'm saying here. 
But on to the second part of these final thoughts. I see some on Twitter, and really only on Twitter, have their panties in a twist because Florida Governor and Trump challenger Ron DeSantis was seen drinking a beer with the good folks of Iowa. Oh, the horror, the horror I know. Good Lord. If DeSantis drinking a frickin' Coors Light gets your panties in a twist, you need new panties because yours are full of crap. You know, it's really irking me that the same people who proclaimed Ron to be America's governor about a year ago are now lambasting him as a rhino, a drunk, or both for having a beer on the campaign trail. You know, I reckon these are the same people who also had a meltdown over the Barbie movie. You know, it's totally fine to support one candidate over the other, but the pettiness that this primary season has stooped to is so cringe, it could make Hillary blush. Maybe instead of all the BS, we should be out there supporting people like Scott Pressler, who is knocking on doors and doing the hard work to win this election for Republicans and patriots in general. Boy, imagine what Scott Pressler could do to get out the vote with that 40 million bucks the Trump camp has hemorrhaged on legal fees. I'm just saying it's the truth, and I know you all can handle it. Those are my final thoughts. And exciting announcement, Tommy Lahren is Fearless is now available on Fox Nation, so be sure to head over to Fox Nation, catch up on the episodes and anything that you might have missed. We are so excited to partner with Fox Nation for this exciting event. From Nashville, God bless and take care.